Welcome to today's episode of PDSD, Me, Myself and Him, by Scott Stevenson. Hello everyone and welcome back to this episode 3 of my podcast series, PTSD, Me, Myself and Him. Um, today's the intro is, comes with a, a health warning. I'm going to be talking about my experiences in the um, the Kosovo conflict back in 1999. Um, some of the stuff I'm going to talk about today is quite um, disturbing and quite graphic. Um, so if it's not for yourself, so I perfectly understand that, trust me, it wasn't for me when I went through it either. But I feel it's important that we discuss in some details some of the things that can cause post-traumatic stress disorder and the way it can sneak, sneak up on you when you when it's actually happening to you. So yeah, fair warning, a little bit of a gra- graphic content, a little bit of um, graphic um, discussion. Um, so let's settle down and get to talk to him about exactly what we're going to do on today's podcast. So where did it all begin? For me, for a long time, I always thought it began for me in 1999 with the Kosovo conflict. Um, I now know that that is probably not true. I now know that I probably had post-traumatic stress disorder and and my other conditions before I actually went to Kosovo. But Kosovo was the first time that it really intruded into my own personal understanding of self to the to its most horrific um, levels that allowed me to to understand what's going on. So a bit of background: 1999. I was 29 years old. I was a sergeant in the Royal Military Police Special Investigations Branch based in Germany and I was selected from a hand cast of one, I was the closest to the OC at the time I think, um, to go out to the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia, um, to Skopje and work out there in, in support of the, the battle group that was out there as part of the, the spearhead. At that point we weren't sure whether anybody was ever going to go into Kosovo whether thing was going to happen or not, we just put the, the soldiers out there firsthand to make them a bit closer to the, the border. Um, everything's a bit hazy for me, memory-wise, so there's no point trying to, you know, do um, dates and times. But I, I think it was sort of a, maybe April, May time or something like that. I went out, I went out there and um, and flew out um, with the um, the elements and the local Provo company, the local uniform police company. Uh, to go out and just to support what was going on. So, when I got there, it was just like any other glorified exercise, really. There was no indication that we were going to be doing anything any, any anything out of the ordinary other than wandering around. Um, my time there was incredibly, incredibly boring, it has to be said. Um, it was just basic run-of-the-mill policing work, and very basic policing work at that, you know. Um, it was dealing with a soldier who'd lost his morphine, dealing with a soldier who'd lost his or her, um, some of his or her animation. It was just very basic, very basic investigative stuff, very boring, very humdrum. And I think in many ways, it was the going from that to what happened when we went into Kosovo, that dichotomy of these two really extremes that had one of the major effects on me. And then, as I'll talk about later on in the episode, it was then having to readjust myself from what we were doing in Kosovo to going back to being a normal sort of police officer, doing normal sort of 
crime, if there is such a thing, um, while still being in the midst of all this other stuff that was going on that, you know, was the final straw that broke my back. But we're going to go into that in a bit more detail. So 1999, I'm in Macedonia. We're about to go into Kosovo. Um, the operation was called Operation Agricola. Um, every All of us just called it Angry Cola. There's always a nickname somewhere along the line for it. Uh, and that was it. There was lots going on. And predominantly it was basically to really make it ridiculously simple. Um, Kosovo was being run by the Serbians. Lots of people in Kosovo were ethnic Albanians. The Serbians were not treating the ethnic Albanians very well. That was the sort of reason why the West got involved because they didn't want to see another Bosnia again. And when they got enough political goodwill along with the Russians to involve, then all the forces went into Kosovo. The Serbs withdrew and left the ethnic Albanians behind. So we were in there to um, protect the Albanians, uh, the ethnic Albanians, ethnic Kosovans from or the Kosovars, I think it is, um, from the atrocities that were being committed on them, allegedly by the Serbians. Um, by the time we all got in there on day one, day two, day three, the vast majority of the Serbs had left, and um, everything that I witnessed from that point on was almost exclusively um, ethnic-related sectarian violence of Albanians against Serbians. There's no doubt in my mind there was lots of stuff beforehand that happened the other way around and there's lots of evidence of mass graves and murders and and all sorts of stuff like that going on. But what we basically saw was revenge killings, um, almost exclusively Albanians on um, any Serb that they could get their hands on. So that's just to sort of really set the, the scene. And it really is just one of those things. War just does not bring out the best in humanity, any conflict like that we regress back to our base instincts. And one of them is, unfortunately, the, the instinct for revenge. And when people are looking for revenge, they can do some incredibly horrific things to each other and keep on doing them and keep on doing them because we get into the us and them. Anybody that's listening to this podcast in Northern Ireland knows exactly what I mean about the us and them thing. It, you justify it all by you're not doing it to another human being, you're doing it to one of them. Uh, and it, it, we've seen it here in the Troubles, we've seen it in the Balkans, we've seen it in Africa with the Hutus and the Tutsis. Uh, Tutsis sorry. There's, there, people will do almost anything to anybody else and that's unfortunately the level of brutality that I and, my, and the people I worked with um, on that tour are going to see was just something that we were completely and utterly unprepared for. The army hadn't prepared us for it. In their defence, I don't think they even knew how to prepare anybody for it. But again, uh, it was just one of those things. So I think there was about 19, 20 of us in total, maybe. Uh, and what do, investigating special crimes, effectively, we were just, we used to call ourselves the, the Kosovo Murder Squad. Um, and while we were there, we seen pretty much every form of murder there was to see. For me, it's all blurred into a bit of a background. I now have memories of crime scenes I didn't actually go to. But because I've seen the crime scene photographs and because I talked with the people, I actually went to them. It's all sort of got mixed up into my head as one amorphous mass of just horror. Um, and it does, even now, years later, um, I... 
affects me greatly as soon as I start I start to think about thinking about um, the things I saw out there. Um, just going to take a second. So what were we dealing out there with? Well, we were working, and most of us working in in pairs. And um, uh, my partner at the time was uh, a lovely lady called Nia. And all the rest of the groups were all split into pairs, and you would go out and and deal with whatever came in on your um, watch rotation. Um, I can't remember how the shifts or whatever worked, but basically, if you were up, if a mur um, if a if a murder came in or a, another serious crime, off you went to it. The reality was there was so much murder that was all we dealt with, whether it be a murder of a single individual, murder of um, a small family group, or the mass murder of um, multiple people. We um, they all came in at one stage or another, another to us. You have to understand to put it in context. There is no government in Kosovo. There is no central. Um, control of any sort. All the infrastructure is, is is intrinsically broken, so there's no support staff for anything. So when when you go to a murder, um, the police are the effectively the battle group, the soldiers, the specialist detectives, um, were us, the SIB and the RMP, and for everything else, it was again just us, the soldiers. So no no medical examiners, no coroners, nothing like that. You turned up and you dealt with the scene the best you can, bearing in mind that it was a conflict zone. So there was a security risk to every single site you went you went out to. As it turned out, there was very few periods where we were under direct threat, but you only know that after the fact. You don't know that at the time. And it doesn't mean that if we'd ever come across somebody in the middle, just after a murder, that they've, you know, kindly given their hands up and and surrendered to us. That would just never have happened. So you would go out shooting, stabbing, strangulations. Um, some of the ones I didn't go to, but other teams went to. Um, death by electrocution with a fan in the bath, drowning in the bath. Um... Um, there was a couple of people in the university that I did attend that were tortured for days before they were eventually executed. I've seen other people that were stabbed to death with knives up into the armpits, you know, like something out some special forces movie. And, you know, one by one, um, from youngest to oldest, to, so that they, presumably so the oldest person could see everything that was his family die in front of him. It was just that kind of deep levels of hatred that was in that country at that time. And that, that that's things not easy to deal with, that level of just absolute vileness and hatred for other human beings was just, it took its toll. Um, so you'd photograph the crime scene, you'd, you'd recover the, the, the shells, the casings, uh, you know, all this sort of stuff, try to do your best to be a... A good investigator, but I just wasn't equipped for it, neither emotionally or or training wise. And in reality, we did the best we could, but you know sometimes you'd end up coming back from a crime scene with the the deceased in the back of the Land Rover with us in a body bag because nobody turned up to take the body away. We'd take the body back to the the, the mortuary in the morgue, and I remember some of my colleagues, you know, 
wiping the blood off people's faces so that they could um, unzip the body bag to show the, the relatives for the identification because if we didn't do it, nobody else was going to do it. Our mortuary was a refrigerating ISO container um, with the bodies piled three to four deep in it. You, you used to have to stand on somebody else's corpse to get the new one in. It was just utterly horrific and that just became our daily normality. It became our norm. I knew even then that there was something wrong with me but you just dealt with everything with black humour and just to get your job done. But it, it, it was taking its toll. Uh, I dealt with it by focusing all my attention on, on my ex-wife um, who's, who I was married to for um, nearly nearly, 18, nearly 18 years. At that point, we'd only been married two or three years. Um, no, three years, in fact. Um, so I focused everything that was good in my life was her. Um, so, you know, everything that I, all the hopes and dreams for my future were invested in, in my wife, my ex-wife, sorry. Um, and that was the way I dealt with and the start of compartmentalizing basically I separated everything I was going from and it started that separation and disassociation of of myself from the reality so what was it that finally broke me well for me it was it was quite simply trying to deal with all of this murder all of these things that were going on and then I was sent to deal with some normal crime because still normal crime in the theatre had to be investigated. And allegedly, um, in fact, I can't go into too many details because it's still be bound by the Official Secrets Act, but I basically had to get in the truck and drive all the way from where, where we were in Pristina, all the way down through Kosovo, down the way through Greece to uh, Thessaloniki, the port, to go deal with an allegation that someday had been fiddling the books and was making some money selling stuff that you shouldn't have been selling uh, effectively running a, a talk shop of some description um but you know it was, it was fraud it was theft it's still a, a serious crime it still had to be investigated i i get all that but the me in 1999 in kosovo had just come back from a crime scene um where a family had been executed didn't understand why i was being forced to go off and do this stuff when there was so much more important to me, things that needed to be done where we were. Really, in the big scheme of things, I always used to refer to it flippantly as the, the Mars bar case. I wasn't interested in the Mars bar case. I most definitely wasn't interested in driving six hours to go and do with the Mars bar case. But that's what I was told to do. Like all good soldiers, I did as I was told and then swear profusely behind everybody's back about what a bunch of um, bar stewards they were and off I went to do it. But the reality is that broke me inside. It absolutely did. I mean, I did it to myself because I'd worked it up that I, I should be off saving people or doing my best to catch the uh, catch the bastards that killed X, Y and Z. But I, I just couldn't do it. Um, but I went off, did went through the motions, did the bare minimum, um, yeah, came back again and then so in amongst all these murders I couldn't do anything to solve I had to um, where I could um, start putting together normal everyday 
humdrum policing. And it was that clash of the normal against the surreal of what we were dealing with that was just too much for my brain to cope with anymore. Um, it got compacted and worse because I got taken away from another crime scene to go and deal with um, something else. Um, bear in mind this was 1999 at that, uh, that point there were certain sexual activities that were illegal in the army um, uh, uh, that shouldn't have been illegal but that's what they were uh, to go and deal with uh, um, with that and again the rebel inside me was screaming at the top of his voice that this shouldn't be happening but and as I was told, went off and dealt with it and started a case file and started investigating. Um, going through the motions, but inside, I, I was just... I mean, at that point then, I, I, I just died inside because I had no interest in, in that whatsoever. And I felt like every time I devoted a second or two to that, I was, I was turning my back on everybody else that needed my help and assistance and... And how could I possibly be interested in this when there's so much more life and death matters to deal with? Or as it tended to be death and death. Um, and that's when, for me, um, it, it all started to go wrong. Um, it started with nightmares, not being able to sleep. Um, and over, over our return over the next few weeks, um, when I returned back to, to Germany, um, everybody else went home to UK. I went back to Germany on my own. I was the only one from the team. Um, so I, all that disassociation, that um, feeling alone, feeling different, all started to creep in. I hated myself and I projected it onto everybody around me. At that point then, it's no exaggeration to say that I hated every single person in my chain of command above me because they'd all failed me and they'd all failed the people and... Uh, Really, I hated myself, but I was projecting outwards. Um, smells, sounds, flashbacks. I mean, I, I was a walking stereotype of post-traumatic stress disorder, everything that you, you see. But for me, flashbacks were not flashbacks like you see them in the telly portrayed or anything like that. It would just be, a, I'd stop and then, you know, in my mind's eye, I would be back where I was at whatever crime scene or whatever it's autopsy or or whatever. I mean, the smell of death is something that once you know it, you will never, ever forget it. And you'll never, ever be able to not recognise it either. But I was just a walking bag of guilt. I, you know, deserved to be punished. I was an absolute shit to my ex-wife at the time. But I just, I didn't know it. Um, I lost all touch with reality. I, I started binge eating um, in extreme levels. I was at McDonald's, KFC, Burger King, Schnelly every single day, all four of them, as well as going home to eat a normal meal at dinner time and then uh, making myself sick and throwing up. Uh, just anything to, as an hour note, to fill that gap in my stomach where, um, where what I was as a human being and crawled away and vanished. Um, those two cases I mentioned, I brought them back to Germany with me, opened my bottom drawer, threw them in the bottom drawer and never told anybody they existed. 
I knew I could never get away with it, but this was the start of my continuing desire to be punished. And that's what happened to me. I deserved to be punished because I, I had effectively survivor's guilt. You know, why should I be alive when all these good people were, were dead? What, you know, why did I get to go on having a good life? These are the things that went round in my head. Uh, my most common recurring nightmare, which is an absolute doozy. If you can imagine, um, if you don't know the military, we have things called mess do's, big formal um, dinners where you're all in your, your, your equivalent to black tie, but your formal mess dress uniform, and you're all, you know, silver table service and all the rest of that. Very posh, brilliant. Um, my recurring nightmare was I went to one of those. Um, I was at the top table um, hosting the whole event and everybody else at the event was a dead person who I dealt with or had seen the pictures of from Kosovo. And I used to go through this five or six course dinner with all these dead people. And I used to have that nightmare day in, day out for what in reality was years. But you know, as we'll talk about in, in the coming episodes, and I pretended I stopped having it because I had to pretend I was okay because if I wasn't okay, my career would suffer. So that was it. I mean, the, the final trigger for me was um, going in to visit the ex-wife at work. Uh, she'd asked me to bring something because we were going to go shopping. I'd forgot it. But, uh, you know, I lost it, effing and blinding and swearing and calling her all sorts of names in front of everybody she worked with in the public. Oh, because I'd forgotten to do something, and she, she had the cheek to 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 tell me that I, that's the last thing I asked you to do before I left, and that was it. It was red rag to bow, and off I went. Um, I went storming off then, vanished off, got leathered, drunk, um, and then picked another fight when I got home, and and then turned up late for work, drunk the next day, fell asleep on my desk. And then the boss found me and said, what's going on? At that point then, I just completely collapsed crying. And that was it. When I'd hit rock bottom, I asked for some help. Right, everyone, I think I'll bring it to a close there today. That's been pretty tough even for me after all these years to go through. And I imagine it's not particularly um, easy to listen to either. Um, so I just wanted to give some flavour of, of what I went through in Kosovo. Um, I'm going to talk about some of the other things that occurred in my military service that complemented and created the post-traumatic stress disorder and some of the other things that go along with it, some of the major mistakes I made and how I dealt with it and how I continue to deal badly with it over the coming, the coming episodes. And again, all I hope is that my brutal honesty might help at least one person somewhere to ask for help before it gets as bad as it got for me and do something about it properly as opposed to sticking plaster like I did for pretty much my entire adult life. Okay, that's it. Th uh, it seems weird to say thank you for listening, but again, thank you for listening. Um, I, I know this isn't easy, easy, easy stuff to listen, listen to. Um, uh, and it seems a bit weird to say, I hope you're enjoying it, but I, I kind of, I kind of am in a way, in a strange sort of way. 
So as always, if anybody wants to get in touch or, or uh, message me or anything, just pick me up on my social media channels, either LinkedIn or Instagram. I'm more than happy to chat with anybody uh, about what's going on. Thanks very much, and I'll speak to you all again next week.